Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So, up next we have the one of the most famous Beatles songs for many uh, reasons, and also one of perhaps my least favorite Beatles single of all time, at least the A-side, which is All You Need Is Love, which was released on July 7th, 1967, so a few months after Sgt. Pepper. I was backed with Baby, You're a Rich Man, which is a song I actually do like. This is a weird one, and it's a weird one in part because it is it was actually part of the first live global satellite TV broadcast in the history of the world. So the song was actually written for it, and specifically, John Lennon was like, I'm going to write something with a universal message because it was going out to the largest audience, or one of the largest audiences in history. I don't know how many countries actually did get the broadcast, how, how hard it was to see in, a various, in various countries. I have no idea. I should ask my parents, honestly, if they have any memory. Can of I it. ask you a question about that? Sure. Just a weird definition for me. So this would have been what, 67? 60... July 67. Okay, so when you say satellite broadcast, were they actually satellite or was it microwave? I have no idea. Yeah, like, I don't think it's important. I just I did not think in '67 there was enough of a telecommunications satelliteness at the time to do this. Maybe it's, it might be satellite in the sense of like a satellite room. Yeah, yeah. Unusual question for me. I'm just curious. yeah. No, I have, I have no idea. Um, I just know that it was. It was an attempt at getting as many people to watch the same thing at the same time as possible. I don't know what time of day it was at. So obviously that would affect people. You know, if you're like in Australia, (laughs) I don't know if you were able to watch it, for example, because you didn't want to get up in the middle of the night, but it was the Beatles. They were part of it anyway. So (laughs) this this is a strange product. The Beatles are with an orchestra and there are tons of people singing along, many of whom were famous. Um, they had a bunch of famous people in there, but they were pre- playing to a pre-recorded rhythm track. So the results actually didn't work very well live because there were a ton of people in the room. And so when they actually released the recording, they actually had to edit repairs. So it's, there's a long history, as, as you know, Dave, a long history of editing live albums before they release them to make them sound better. better. The most famous example, at least infamous example that I'm aware of is Kiss's Alive album, which was like just is filled of overdubs but it was actually very common uh, certainly uh in the rock world in particular to do this once overdubbing became a a, a thing you could do and then it's of course with punk and later with grunge and things like that it became far less cool in fact when people found out they would get mad but for a long time it was quite common it has been done to some extent in jazz but in jazz traditionally it was much more normal to to just release the uh original take and actually in jazz sometimes you do get where they have actually gone and edited the live album they now release like box sets where they play like they let you listen to the whole show unedited but yeah this was a this was an instance in which the actual recording everything that was done live didn't really work out so john lennon recorded a new vocal uh ringo Starr recorded a new drum part because i guess the drums couldn't really be here because there were so many people in the room and yeah, it's 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 one of those things. I don't I don't know how common it was prior to this, but it was one of those things where the Beatles may have been innovating in a way that isn't necessarily positive. 
the time does vary in the song. So one reason maybe why uh, Ringo Starr's drums in the original weren't amazing is because they do actually vary the time a little bit. If it's notable for anything, it's notable for the first bit of Beatles self-referential postmodernism. And that is in the coda, Paul McCartney sings, she loves you a little bit. And they also uh, quote Bach at one point in the orchestra, but that's just regular postmodernism. In this case, the Beatles were actually referencing one of their own songs for the first time, which would become a bit of a thing they were going to start doing frequently. So then there's the B-side. So I mean, yeah, I'm not a big fan of All You Need Is Love. I find the message is really silly. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a famous song. It was part of a famous broadcast. But Baby, You're a Rich Man, the B-side, I find a little more interesting. Much like a day in the life, it's actually two songs stitched together, only it's way less weird than A Day in the Life. The verses are a John Lennon song. The chorus is a Paul McCartney song. They had nothing to do with each other initially. It also has this very weird facsimile of an Eastern reed instrument. And it's actually something called the clavio line, which is an early predecessor of the synthesizer. And it's looped, so it just runs throughout the song. It's that weird, annoying sound that you hear. Maybe you're a rich band if you've listened to it. And at the time... Basically, nobody in rock music was using the clavio line, perhaps because it sounded kind of awful. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it is the distinct weird whiny noise in the song. It's possible Mick Jagger uh, sang some of the backing vocals on this song. Uh, no idea if that's true or not. It's a rumor. Uh, he was also, I believe, one of the many famous people in All You Need Is Love. But there's like a whole bunch of them. Also, weirdly, here's some weird uh, minutiae. Jimi Hendrix's famous engineer, if you, if you care about record production, you might know that Jimi Hendrix's engineer is Eddie Kramer, was Eddie Kramer. And he actually uh, plays the vibraphone on this uh, song. Vibraphone, for those who don't know, is an instrument that is a bunch of different sized bars that you hit with mallets. And they, those bars are actually tuned and can be, their tuning can be changed. And I believe it's electrified, if I'm not mistaken. The thing that uh, keeps uh, um, changes a vibraphone from a xylophone is that it's electrified. If I'm not sure, it's um. Uh, if my brain's working correctly, it gives it a distinct tone because it there's a um, I'm gonna call it a board for lack of a better term that shuffles across the top of the resonance tubes. Okay, and it gives it that kind of um, vibra. Yeah, feel that, like it's vibrating. Yeah, yeah, and that's what separates it from the xylophone. Because the xylophone is basically wood blocks above. Okay resonance tubes and a vibraphone has metal tubes and i think it has the thing in there okay i could be wrong it's been a long time since my mother's given me a lesson on percussion instruments so that was a another unique instrument though it's in it's notable that um in a early uh, version of i'm only sleeping from revolver they actually had a vibraphone on it played by paul mccartney but they didn't use that version because paul mccartney can play whatever he wants 
Also, it was his 80th birthday the other day. Uh, gives you an idea of when this was recorded. So both of these songs would find their way onto uh, the U.S. album version of Magical Mystery Tour, which I will explain in a little bit, but neither was available on the U.K. version, and I will say why. So a few months later, they released Hello Goodbye, backed with what I think is one of their most notable pieces of music in their history, which is I Am the Walrus. So that's what we're moving on to next. Uh, Hello Goodbye is a Paul McCartney song. If you couldn't tell by the lyrics, pretty obviously a Paul McCartney song. This single is, is perhaps one of the best contrasts of, of the two songwriters in their catalog, though I would say the quality <laughs> from one to the other is maybe not on the, on the, on the same level. Yeah. The, the, the differences in how they wrote is, is pretty uh, stark here. We have a silly little love song that was a massive hit, and we have one of the most progressive recordings in the history of rock music, and they're on the same single. And that is just wacky to me. Uh, so Hello Goodbye is the silly little love song. It is apparently an attempt at writing about a yin-yang relationship, but I, I, uh, I mean, sure. Uh, as I've said multiple times throughout this podcast, don't listen to the Beatles for their philosophy. However, the track does feature in a completely unplanned and impromptu coda, uh, seemingly influenced by either Hawaiian or Caribbean music, which comes after the false ending. And then they altered it in the studio to make it sound stranger than it did when they originally improvised it. So now there's the song has two codas, basically. So that's the most interesting thing about it in my mind. It is, along with All You Need Is Love, to me, it's one of their weaker A-sides, certainly of this period. But it does have that weird thing of having two codas. Now, there's I Am The Walrus, which I would like to say, before I get into it, was released on a single. Yes, it wasn't the A-side, but because it was a B-side of a Beatles song in the late 60s, their B-sides early on didn't always get a lot of play. The B-sides later on often would get on the radio. This song made it onto the radio, and of course it later made it onto the Greatest Hits compilations. It is not a, f- a forgotten track like some of their earlier B-sides. It's mind-blowing that I Am The Walrus was the B-side. Yeah. Well... To me. I mean, I guess, you know, like, 60 years on, yeah. or just about 60 years on, hindsight's twenty twenty and everything, but even, like, listening to two songs side-by-side, side, I just... I think I, it's obvious which is the better track, yeah. Yeah. However, at the time, one of them was this like aggressively radical piece of music, and the other was, you know, catchy. I mean, they're both yeah. catchy, but like Hello Goodbye but is quite one catchy. is a is a much more marketable song. Yes. So the lyrics, of course, are famously nonsense. So uh, I, I was literally we were talking about music at work a week or two ago, and someone was mocking Goo Goo Jube, and I'm like, it, that's on purpose that it doesn't mean anything. That's the whole thing. The whole point was that they don't mean anything. John Lennon was trying new things, one of which was to... He was really into uh, uh, Edward Lear, the nonsense poet, but also he was 
the Beatles cult had started or the, the cult, the, the, specifically the Paul is dead cult had started where people were reading messages into the Beatles lyrics that weren't there. So John Lennon had started to deliberately write stuff that didn't make sense to fuck with. I did people. not realize the cult was that old. Yeah. yeah it starts with, um, it starts with uh, strawberry fields. Yeah, I guess that makes sense from the, uh, that album that time, that cover. So he, he actually took three sets of lyrics and combined them together and then added nonsense words. And like I said, specifically to confuse people, he was getting tired of people analyzing song lyrics. And, you know, you could say that like a little bit, this, this is a little bit influenced by Dylan in the sense that Dylan's lyrics are, are very, especially the mid sixties are extremely dense and, and are really hard to interpret unless you're like, unless you've read a hell of a lot of poetry in your life, but this is going a little bit further, but the lyrics are kind of like, who cares? It's really the music. The music features all the major chords and a, a coda that features a descending bass line with rising strings. The repetition of the song is seven bars long so that a new chord begins each phrase. There's sort of fairly sophisticated musical ideas, even for the Beatles. John Lennon was actually involved in working this out more so than he had been in some of the other, or, or like earlier in the career with some of the more sophisticated uh, musical ideas. There's a choir uh, singing nonsense words and yelling and shouting in the background. And I just want to bring up Luciano Berrio, the awesome Italian modernist composer from the period, who I don't know if Lennon had listened to Berrio, but like this kind of thing was common to Berrio, but not to like rock music. But then I think there's possibly the biggest part about it, which is the thing that most people probably don't even notice, which is that the song contains possibly the first ever radio sample in popular music history, a multiple, but the, the one that you hear the most is an extended sample, uh, really, really, and the longest sample I'm aware of being used so far in recording music history of a production of King Lear, which is what the, the talking is going on at the end of the song. So samples, wow. of course, been used. The first ever sample in popular music that I'm aware of is by the Beach Boys. It was like a train whistle or something. But then the Beatles went much further. They did both found sounds and created their own. This is going to a whole new extent because it's, it's long. It lasts for over a minute. And there's other samples as well. It's, it's fairly forward in the mix, but it's also part of the song in a way that like a lot of this stuff often wasn't. And uh, you, know, you, you, you can actually listen to people saying the dialogue of King Lear if you're paying enough attention to I'm the Walrus. It's also notable that John Lennon participated in the mixing of the song for perhaps the first time certainly the first time he was actually in like at the board with other people. And this would become of course, more common for the Beatles later, essentially in the past when they were involved in mixing, they were sort of just sitting in the room and giving notes. And in this case, he was actually, you know, in there. It's hard for me to convey, I think how radical, especially something that was released on a disc that was meant deliberately to go went directly to the radio stations with its a side how like aggressively radical it is it's certainly as radical as a day in the life if not more so even though it might be subtler in some ways it's certainly one of the most radical pieces of music they ever recorded immediately but the moment it was played on the radio it introduced anyone who wasn't yet aware to the idea of samples they weren't even called samples back then they were called various things tape effects was one common name and you know i, I can you imagine being like a, a young musician or a young person listening to the radio and this some something comes on and it's got like and you and you know you maybe were aware of the use of samples because you listened to all the Beatles recordings or you listened to that one Beach Boy song or whatever. But like 
I just, I think it would be like one of those things. It would be just shocking. I think the first time I actually hear it, whereas I grew up in a world where the song was a, was famous. So to me, yeah. it's never been shocking, but I would have thought because it got played on the radio, not as much as uh, hello goodbye and not as much as their biggest hits. But like I said, it eventually found its way onto the blue album. One of their major greatest hits records because it got played so much on the radio and it's like aggressively strange, you know, in every way, both lyrically and musically. Uh, next up, uh, a, a month later, we have the the confusing, actually, not even a month, but a few weeks later, um, we have the Magical Mystery Tour record, which is two different things. In, in the UK, it was a double EP, literally two EP records released together. And in the States, it was an LP. And it's the only US album that is now canon. Uh, as I said at the beginning of this, every British album, for the Beatles, the British albums are canon, starting with Please Please Me all the way through to Let It Be, with this exception. Because what, what the US version did solved a bit of a release issue. So it has a bit of a confusing history. And, and the thing is, is uh, if, if, so if you've ever had it on CD, or if you probably, presumably, you find the, the track listing on the internet now, you're familiar with a tr- 11 track listing that starts with Magical Mystery Tour and ends with All You Need Is Love, but also notably contains Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, which came out in February of, of that year. However, that's not what the UK audience got. So the double EP concept allowed the Beatles to put their limited new soundtrack material out in an interesting and unique way. They didn't have enough music. Well, exactly. They didn't have quite enough music for an LP. They only had five new songs and seven, if you include the outtakes from Sgt. Pepper that we are going to talk about in a little bit when we get to Yellow Submarine, or they had eight, if you include Carnival of Light. What is Carnival of Light? Well, nobody knows. Carnival of Light is an avant-garde music um, composition that Paul McCartney created in 1967 that has never actually been released even on the anthology. It's just never been heard. A few people close to the Beatles have been heard, but I guess he hates it so much. Well, He's actually blocked its release. And the other two uh, tracks that we will talk about when we get to Yellow Submarine, they also disliked enough to put on essentially a throwaway record. So really, they had five new songs. And so they weren't sure, really, prior to coming out with the double AP, they didn't know what to do. Uh, the soundtrack was for Magical Mystery Tour, a TV film, which was the first thing the Beatles ever did, basically, in their career that was, wasn't greeted with universal praise. Now, personally, I've never seen it. I've seen excerpts, such as the Fool on the Hill music video and the Magical Mystery Tour video, but almost everyone thinks it's terrible. If you, most people, the reviews when it aired were terrible, and most people who've gone out of their way who are not absolute Beatles diehards, gone out of their way to find it, also agree it's a mess. It was a concept from McCartney, just like Sgt. Pepper, and it further emphasized the growing divide between John Lennon, who uh, didn't want to do this kind of stuff, and Paul McCartney, who apparently wanted to turn the Beatles albums into a musical or an opera so you know this dichotomy it is rather uh, stark at this point and also i think is is as i mentioned before is sort of like the the almost ideological split between art rock and prog rock but i i, I do tend to harp on that a little too much the soundtrack itself has its moments but it is a very clear letdown from sergeant pepper obviously sergeant pepper in many ways being one of the most influential albums ever made and one reason to listen to the U.S. album instead is because it has the singles from this year, even though I was criticizing the two, last two A-sides. So that makes the whole thing a lot stronger. And that's probably why the U.S. LP is now canon. 
and the WP isn't is because the WP is not as good. So the track listing of the WP is Magical Mystery Tour, Your Mother Should Know, I Am the Walrus, which was included, uh, Fool in the Hill, Flying, and Blue Jay Way. The, the LP adds, it, first of all, it moves stuff around, but it adds Hello Goodbye, it adds Strawberry Fields, it adds Penny Lane, it adds Baby Rich Man, and it's all you need to love. So the title track, Magical Mystery Tour, introduces the concept of a mini album. It was written, the music was written by Paul McCartney. The lyrics were actually co-written with John Lennon, despite him not loving the whole concept. It introduces uh, the concept of uh, the show, which is a traveling show of the kind, which was apparently moving around England when McCartney and Lennon were younger. They add some fantastical or supernatural elements to the description, which was a thing that you were doing in the psychedelic era, I guess. It was written and recorded well before the movie was made. And the movie was made to fit the concept of the song, which I think helps explain why the movie is a bit of a disaster, even though I've not seen it. Generally speaking, if you're creating a movie out of a skit or a song or a video game, it's probably not going very well. The song itself can be thought of a bit of as overture and sort of it's, it's brief and it's swift and there are changes in tempo, but it definitely feels like we're getting somewhere. Uh, for Paul McCartney's 80th birthday, they did. They interviewed 80 song, 80 musicians asked and picked their favorite Paul McCartney songs. And Wayne Coyne of Flaming Lips picked Magical Mystery Tour and said, "No, I'm not joking." And then actually did a fairly good, uh, coherent write up about why he likes it, which you can find somewhere on the internet. I think it was uh, Stereo Gum was the uh, the article or the site that did the interview. I was sort of surprised. I've never particularly liked the song. The next track is "Your Mother Should Know." Uh, McCartney nostalgia trip, highlighting his growing fascination with older pre-rock forms of music, which is going to persist basically almost to the end. Well, second last of their records. And, you know, his, his sort of desire to romanticize uh, the past and his childhood Apparently, it's an old-fashioned dance number in the, the movie, but of course, I've never seen the movie. It was recorded late summer, so uh, Magical Mystery Tour was recorded in April and May, and uh, Your Mother Should Know was recorded in August and September, which just goes to show you how sporadic the recording was at the time, and I think pretty indicative of how worn out they were from uh, both Revolver and Sar- especially Sgt. Pepper. I'm tempted to write it off, but it is, uh, it's actually uh, more interesting musically than, say, When I'm 64 is, which is an earlier version of the style of music. The bridge, for example, is where the chorus should be a very common Beatles trick. Also, they fool around with the home key, which is another very common trick. We, of course, already talked about I Am the Walrus. The track after I Am the Walrus is completely different, The Fool on the Hill, which is another Paul McCartney track. probably the highlight of the soundtrack songs unless you include i am the walrus in that which of course it was originally not written for the soundtrack this is another sort of paul mccartney attempt at writing a, a more serious song on the lines of eleanor rigby or she's leaving home but i don't know if you have to worry so much about the lyrics it's the arrangement's quite elaborate um it's mostly performed by paul mccartney actually 
Um, he plays piano, guitar, bass, recorder, penny whistle, and he sings, I believe, all the vocals. Maybe there's only that one lead. And uh, it's, it's certainly an, an elaborate recording. It's a far more sophisticated attempt at writing an art song than his previous attempts. And uh, it was also recorded relatively recently in September and October. But it's certainly more musically interesting than a lot of stuff here. And then there's Flying. Flying is a jam though it was altered later on uh, for the finished product. It is one of the few um, jams that were ever released. And you can find more of those on Anthology, but they didn't release most of the takes. They were just usually released like one or two. It went through a number of permutations before it was released. First, it was a Dixieland, it had a Dixieland-style ending. Later, it turned into a nine-minute sound collage that was created by John Lennon and Ringo Starr, which apparently sort of presaged revolution number nine, but they didn't actually go with that one. Instead, they altered it again. It features wordless vocals singing the melody. It is one of the weirdest songs the Beatles ever released. It resembles basically nothing else they ever released. It is basically pure filler and arguably, you know, pretty instructive of the fact that they were not really, they weren't sure what to do here, um, given that they both attempted a Dixieland style ending. And they also were thinking about essentially what was Magical Mysteries Tour number nine. Also, it's notable that it is one of the few officially released pieces, if not the only, well, few released officially released pieces before uh, Let It Be that was credited to all four members. It's quite short in its final, you know, in the version that was put out. And so the Beatles were often very good at cutting things down. And I think in this particular case, it might have actually failed them. I'm more interested in these like hypothetical other versions than I am in the thing that made it onto Magical Mystery Tour. Personally, I find it, I'm not a skipper. I, I like to listen to albums as a whole, but if there's a track in the Beatles catalog that I would skip, Flying would be right high up on that list. Lastly, we have Blue Jay Way, George Harrison's one contribution to this record. It is not one of his more notable efforts lyrically. He's literally detailing what he was doing when he was writing it, which is that he was waiting for someone to show up. Um, it is heavily influenced by Indian concepts of tonality, and it's also fairly slow before, compared to Western music. There is also a cello on it, but no one really knows uh, where the cello came from. I should also mention that George Harrison was playing an organ on this, which was very, very rare for him. Two tracks uh, that were considered for this but didn't make it onto this record were Paul McCartney's All Together Now and George Harrison's It's All Too Much. We will talk about them when we get to Yellow Submarine. And also the Yellow Submarine Outtake a Northern Song was not included as well. And we will talk about that when we get to it. So that's the end of the Beatles psychedelic period, basically. I just have a question, I guess, about output relative to everybody else. It's sometimes yeah. kind of a bit dizzying trying yeah. to keep this all in the timeline sure. uh, like the Beatles were probably fairly like I think fairly clearly more productive than most bands in this era yes just for the sheer volume yeah uh, I'm just like I'm just trying to peg how much more productive in my head because like on the, like on the one hand you hear all these things came out you know in the 60s and then you figure out that oh no like, the, everything all these things came out like so close together yeah how much like how much more of a dominating force were they than everybody else? So it depends on the band, right? The Rolling Stones would release 
went through periods where they released one album a year and went through periods when they released two albums a year. Um, they were actually doing so right around the same time the Beatles were at this point. But notably, the Rolling Stones were, of course, very behind the Beatles when it came to psychedelia. They, they put their, uh, their first psych- proper psychedelic album out like six months after Sgt. Pepper or something, right around the time Magical Mystery Tour came out. Um, but they had put out uh, an album the previous, late the previous year, if I'm not mistaken, which was not psychedelic, but like poppy for them. The Kinks, the Kinks put out albums constantly. The Kinks might have even been more productive, uh, prolific than the Beatles, honestly. I don't remember, but they were putting out like two albums a year. I think they even sometimes put out three albums a year. Or, or take um, CCR, who, who obviously launched their career way late after the Beatles started. They, they, their first album came out in like, I think either, I think it was late 67, so right around this time. CCR put out like five albums in two and a half years or two years or something preposterously. Or maybe six albums in two and a half years. Now, they were very short. They were all half an hour. But that's what the Beatles used to do. On the other hand, The Who put out an album a year, maybe. Uh, Frank Zappa put out an album a year. The Velvet Underground put out an album a year. That was much more common. And of course, all of them started later. The Beach Boys in the early days put out an album every two years, but the Beach Boys albums were, were notably shorter than the Beatles albums. They were 25 minutes usually in the early days. And then once they got in really heavy into the studio, they stopped doing that. They started putting out an album you know, less than once a year. One of the things that happened is the more you sp- time you spend in the studio, like with famously happened with Hendrix and um, Electric Ladyland, is like you tinkered and you tinkered and you tinkered. And suddenly you went from like recording sessions that were tens, out, tens of hours long to recording sessions that were months long, you know? And so it, some people had more control over that than others. The Beatles, one of the things the Beatles were aware of was deadlines for getting stuff out in a way that not everybody was, you know? They were trying constantly to put out an album for the Christmas season or a single for the Christmas season or both. They did that all the time, right? They'd have an album... Most years, they had an album available for Christmas, in addition to another album that year. Whereas not all bands were thinking like that. And I think that's partly because their manager had taught them to think like that. Whereas other bands were ready when they were ready. You know, like once you get to this point where you're tinkering in the studio, you have the ability to constantly edit and re-record. You can tinker as long as you want. I mean, I don't remember how long it took to make Electric Ladyland, but like it was infamous. Like people thought it would never be finished. Now, it's nothing compared to something like Chinese democracy, but like at the time, people thought Electric Ladyland would never be finished because Hendrix was just up all night on drugs, jamming and having fun and editing. And now, you know, it came out probably it, it, compared to nowadays, it actually came out rather quickly, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, it's really hard to say. I would say they were they were among the most prolific bands of their era. I don't know that they were the most, partly because I have this sneaking suspicion that the Kinks might have been, but also because I know for a fact CCR's first five or six records were just like one after the other after the other. It was what CCR did when they first started was like, and this is Motown would do this too, right? Like now Motown recycled tracks, so it doesn't really count because they would put out like four albums in two years and like there would be like five songs repeated. One album might have this song that another album did, and then they would have a song that was on a different album and all that stuff. So it doesn't really, it's not really the same, but there were certain 
you know, parts of the music industry that were very much on, we got to get more music out. We got to get more music out and other parts that were less concerned with that, especially the more uh, control the artists had. I think the more control the artists had, the more likely they were to, uh, you know, fight for having more time, whether that was a good thing or not. Right. It turned out to often not be a good thing. So it was a bit of a mix of, I guess, the Beatles artistry that they had a lot that they wanted to produce and, get out there but also to a certain extent it was a certain amount of the um, we'll call it business acumen yeah and of like getting of getting music out there so they would have a sellable product and that's having. why magical mystery tour exists they didn't have enough stuff but they felt compelled to release it because they always did and they had some stuff if they had nothing they probably would have just done what they did after revolver and take a break however they felt the need from their previous history of, like you said, of this business business acumen of always having songs in the charts, always having a product for Christmas. They felt the desire to get something done. And that not only led to this album, which is, you know, one of the two least good of their, in some ways, of, of their, all their albums, or at least their official uh, proper full albums, but also, you know, led to a, a TV special that was basically the first thing that they ever got bad reviews on. You know, the TV special was panned. And I mean, like I said, I've never seen it, but like, I think one reason was it was a rush and was an attempt to like do something with the fact that they had five new songs instead of 13 for perhaps the first time in their career. You know, the thing that I find more interesting is that this is the end of the psychedelic era of the Beatles, which, and we're, we're still in 1967. Now there's a couple songs that come after that would qualify as psychedelic but not many. And so I just want to mention that because I think it's really notable. The Beach Boys had, had, would put out Smiley Smile. I don't remember when exactly that came out, but that was pretty damn psychedelic. And then Brian Wilson would essentially quit temporarily and they would sort of move a little bit back to their old form of music, but they didn't do that yet. They were still very much in psychedelia at the time. Now the Birds, unlike the Beach Boys, had abandoned psychedelia already, though nobody knew at this point, they had never fully gone over to psychedelia. They were always playing folk songs as well and a little bit of country. But famously, even before the Beatles could get their first non psychedelic album out, Birds would have a country album that they would release in the summer. But they would be like essentially the only other band. Pink Floyd, who were the most notable UK psychedelic band, arguably aside from the Beatles, had just put out their big psychedelic album and they would put out another album the next summer that people might didn't necessarily realize was moving beyond psychedelia at the time, but the time it was labeled uh, psychedelic. I, I think I already mentioned the Rolling Stones came late to the party and they were just making psychedelic music. Now, of course, they would abandon that within a year because they're the Rolling Stones. The Who were notable for avoiding psychedelia. They actually, they recorded one song uh, that is a parody of Pink Floyd that was not released until much later. But beyond that, they avoided psychedelia. However, most other British bands dabbled in psychedelia on the American side of things, the music was quite you know, widespread. There's the psychedelic scene in LA, which is quite different and not that psychedelic. There's the psychedelic scene in San Francisco. There was one in New York, which is more of a folk psychedelic scene, psych folk, whatever you want to call it. But most of these bands persisted for a few years to make psychedelic music. There's People were still making psychedelic music into the 70s. There's an American band called Spirit that released one, a classic psychedelic record called 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus in 1970. So three, over, um, well, three, 
two and a bit, something like that, nearly three years later. But the fact is the Beatles were the biggest band in the world and their abandonment of psychedelia so quickly. They, they released their first psychedelic recordings in the spring of 1966. And we are now in December, 1967, we're talking a year and a half. Their abandonment of psychedelia would be a pretty big signal to the rest of the world that this thing was already over. It is worth noting before we move on that psychedelia produced a lot of things that would come to dominate music until punk came along. It created art rock, it created avant or experimental rock, it created prog rock. It also arguably caused the country rock or country pop revolu- uh, sort of reaction of the 1970s. So much of the music that came before punk in the States in particular was like this was mellow AM radio that was really sort of vaguely countryish. And you could argue that that was a huge response to the dominance of this weird, vaguely Indian music that was everywhere on the charts for like three years. Anyway, that's the reaction to psychedelia. And that's what came later. And that is what we will be talking about next time. 